I just kind of started to give myself a little bit more credit for what I've done and then and stop having that need to incessantly prove myself because no nobody's nobody else is thinking about me that way like nobody else is quantifying other people that way it's just yourself and so I made the choice to stop doing that to myself and just be like you know the priority for me is health because I can't do the running if I'm unhealthy and it's as simple as that. And it's like, the racing doesn't matter. If I'm gonna race terribly because I'm ill, then like, why am I bothering anyways? That's Devin Yanko. And this is episode 47 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome back or welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and this is my show where every week I try and glean as much insight and inspiration as I can from some of the top athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running. And this week, I am excited to share my recent conversation with Devin Yanko. She is, let's call her a, a Jill of all trades, so to speak, when it comes to long distance running. I caught up with her a little over a week before the recent Houston Marathon, where she ended up qualifying for the 2020 Olympic trials. She was less than a minute off of her personal best, but she clocked in at two. 239.37 to earn her spot on the starting line in Atlanta a little over a year from now. Devin's a super accomplished athlete. She has run almost a hundred races of marathon distance or longer. She has won a couple ultra distance national titles on the road. She's represented the U.S. multiple times at world championships. She's been on the podium at Western States. She won the Leadville 100. She's a two-time Olympic trials marathon qualifier, top five at Comrades. In short, ladies and gentlemen, she is a bad ass. This one is loaded. There's a lot here. We talked about how Devin got into running after growing up as a basketball player. We talked about how the sport of trail and ultra running has evolved since she first got into it 13 years ago, which is basically an eternity in this sport. We talked about getting over a tough year in 2018. It was full of health issues and injuries that she had to overcome got into the importance of community, uh, her proudest accomplishment as an athlete. She shared her story of teenage sexual abuse and how that's impacted her life over the past 20 plus years, talked about what can be done to bring more women to trail and ultra running, discussed opening a bakery, my favorite bakery, MH Bread and Butter, with her husband Nathan, and a lot more. This was a great conversation. I really think you'll enjoy it. So buckle yourself in and join me on a wild ride with the fast foodie herself, Devin Yanko. We are we are good to go. Levels look good. Well, I've been excited for this for a while. Devin Yanko, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so, excited to be here. We are what, eleven days out from Houston Marathon? Ten days. Who's so counting? many hours. <laughs> yeah. Have the taper crazies settled in yet? Uh I'm not actually feeling taper crazy. Um it's I think this training block is different because it's the first time probably since I trained for the trials that I feel like I sing, what, like, was singularly focused on a goal um, for like the right amount of time. I saw you posted something about like 14 weeks and I was like, it's basically, it's been 12 weeks, you know? And okay. so the taper crazies, I don't know. I just feel like I'm done everything I can. So like worrying about, like I've controlled all the controllables. And so usually the taper crazies for me come about 
by like knowing that I haven't necessarily done everything I could, or sometimes I've done more than I should have. Um, and I feel like I've done the right amount of work to meet my goals, to like put myself in the position to run the time I want. And that really helps. I mean, I still have 10 more days. So, you know, <laughs> tomorrow I may wake up like twitching. We need to update the podcast episode that we did. I've lost it. I've lost my mind. Yeah, wait for an Instagram post about me losing my mind. But I'm mostly just excited. So tell me about Houston, what is your goal heading into the race? Um, my goal is to run a PR. Um, I have a PR of 238, um, which I ran at the trials, which were in Houston in 2012. And that year, I really kind of, it, it was kind of the same mentality. Like I wanted to see how good I could be after a period of time of doing more of the longer distance stuff. And so I swung back, qualified for the trials. And that was the first time I tried it. And you know, then I went back to doing 100 milers after that. Um, and so now it's kind of like, I want to see what my potential is at the marathon. Like I have shown a lot of what my potential is at the ultra distance, but I still have questions of what my marathon capacity is. And while my coach, my coach and I have like a theory of what my like perfect day, perfect training life capacity could be, like that's different than actually getting out there and running that race. And since I am, you know, I'm 36, it's kind of like the time to do it now. Um, I mean, I feel like because I came to running as an adult, like I'm kind of in my prime. I don't have 25 years of training age on me. I'm, you know, I've only been running marathons for 14 years. So. But you've run quite a few of them in that amount of time. Yeah, I'm, uh, I am at 97 races of marathon or further. Um, right now. How many of those are marathons? Do you know? About half. About half. And yeah. the rest are ultras, yeah. obviously. Yeah. So the last 12 weeks or so, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you have really raced. I have not. And it's like the longest it's amount. It's rare for you. Oh, it's super rare. And actually it came about because I, <laughs> I came into the strain block after racing four times in seven weeks, which started with the world championship in the 100K. And then I did a half marathon and then two marathons. And I came off of that, like clearly it's not a way to perform at your best. Uh, I just kind of was in this, like I wasn't ready to commit at that time. Like I love racing. So it was kind of like, I get that, that stimulus and I was in good shape, but I wasn't really ready to kind of take the dive. And I came back from Mount Desert Island where I had a total crap race. Like somebody was like, you're running great. I'm like, I'm running my 50 mile pace. Like I, I'm Mount literally- Mount Desert Island running, Marathon. Yeah. That's like, a hard course. It's I a really there. hard course. But you know, I'm like running comrades pace and it, like, it's hard. And I came off that race and I was like, I emailed my coach Ian and I was like, okay, I have a new idea. Let's do CIM. And he was like, and this, I mean, anybody who knows Ian knows he's not, he's, he's kind of like my husband in that he's like really quiet, doesn't really like, you know, not a lot of bark, just kind of very nice and accommodating. And he was like, how about, I have an idea. How about you buckle down and stop all this racing and traveling and, you know, uh, doing all these other things and just focus. If you want what you say you want and you've said you wanted this starting last year, like you need to focus. And like, it just pulled, because because he's not necessarily that the type of person who pulls that out. Like, it was impactful. It was very impactful. And it was, to me, it was like, well, duh. Like I have, and it just made me realize that I had been kind of 
afraid to go all in because at the beginning of the year, coming off of foot surgery, um, I went all in similarly, but then I had struggles with all these, all, all the sickness and I got derailed. And so it was just hard for me to want to go there again because I was afraid that if I did that, I would get sick again, even though I've done all this work all year to get better. Has it been hard for you to buckle down these last 12 weeks and not race or travel all that much and just focus on this one thing? Um, you know, I definitely had my moments where I was like, I'll just do a secret half marathon and he'll never know, even though I totally put on Strava, but I didn't do that. But, you know, honestly, it's one, it wasn't that long of a period of time. And two, knowing, like having the experience of succeeding at the trials, essentially doing the same thing. And like, I know, I knew that it was the right thing to do. So it didn't actually make it that hard. Um, and it just really, I love the process. Like that's why I kind of switch between like, I want to run a fast marathon and now I want to go run well at Western States. And now I want to run a fast marathon again is because I love the process. And so it was just a way of giving myself permission to actually commit to that goal. And a lot of times I think I kind of get caught up in the distraction because like there's so many races and it's so awesome. And I can like maintain a high level fitness and compete in a lot of races. And so sometimes I just kind of get caught up in like the wanting to do the races versus the work. And this, as soon as I started doing the work, I just was like having so much fun and like challenging myself in a different way that it was easy to kind of put off that like instant gratification, knowing that like the payoff in the end is better and like knowing how dissatisfied I was. Like I crossed the finish line at Mount Desert Island and I was just like, ugh, you know, like I just ran a marathon, I should be happy. Like I didn't run a slow time. I just was like, I don't wanna do this to myself anymore. Yeah. Like I don't, I, I hadn't put that much into a race and like had it like actually been able to show up for it in a long time because the last couple of years I've had like these, like the most crazy, set, weird set of circumstances and setbacks and things that I haven't actually had the opportunity to do something like this. And we're going to get into that here in a bit. And maybe it's too early to tell because Houston hasn't happened yet. And I mean, heck, this podcast is very likely going to come out sometime <laughs> after Houston. But do you think that will change your approach moving forward as far as how you prioritize races or how you set out your schedule or are you sort of jonesing after Houston to see what else is out there and to experiment at longer distances again, or maybe drop down or what, what's your mindset? Um, well, you know, I, it's kind of both. It's, uh, so I already have a bunch of stuff already on the schedule for after that. Yeah. I guess that was you, you my, know, my language like, way of I asking mean, that. Ian's like no other racing. I'm like, that doesn't mean I can't put a bunch of other races on the schedule for afterwards. But, you know, I think about my most, in my opinion, even though like, you know, everybody has their opinions on like the greatest races other people have done. Like my most successful year was 2012. And I started that off in a very similar way where I- Trials. Yeah, I started with the trials and that train block going into the trials. And then four weeks later, I set the course record at Napa and would have run a faster time than I had run at the trials if I hadn't had the bike pacer take me off course and had to tie my shoe. I ran a 239 like a month after running a 238. And then I went to two oceans and I was third, including being behind a girl who was caught for doping the next year, like 
I got beat by two Russians. And then I was fifth at comrades. And like, you know, so it's like, I know that I can kind of combine these two things where I'm getting to a certain fitness level now for this race, but I can actually, based on how my body has historically recovered, then leverage that into kind of my in season, you know, it's like, you know, most people who aren't crazy ultra runners are like, they run their marathon and then they're like, now I go on vacation. And I'm like, now I run my, I run my marathon. <laughs> now I get to run other races and enjoy the fitness. Um, so it's kind of just breaking up the approach to say, I really like this dedicated amount of time. And I could see myself, for instance, like doing the same thing for the trials next year because the assumption is I'm going to run fast enough at Houston to be there. Because if I run a PR, it's... You should. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like using that in... And I really do enjoy kind of like that method. And I think it works for me. Let's start going backward a little bit to last year. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's a tough year for you in a lot of ways. Yeah, I definitely... It, it definitely felt like I was never like on track. You know, like I had fine. I, I raced, like most people don't even know that I actually like raced very much. I mean, I still raced, but you raced quite a bit. I, I mean, I raced quite a bit, but it was a, a lot of, it's actually been more than just the last year. I mean, the other years, it's kind of like the hardness of the years or like the recovering of the injury was masked by the fact that I like did something like one Leadville on a broken foot. But this 2018 was kind of like that, you know, I was suffering from, I was finally diagnosed with like autoimmune disorders and Hashimoto's in particular. And it's one of those things where it appears to most people that I'm perfectly healthy, but like- Something's off I'm, under the hood. I'm like, yeah, and it's, and it's really hard when you are a fit person to actually have people in general realize that you're very sick. Like even going to the doctor, they'll be like, I'll be like, I'm tired. And they're like, well, you should run less. And you're like, no, you don't understand. Like I know my normal and this is not my I'm normal. Like, I could, I was working on a night shift at our bakery. Like I was sleeping like four hours a day and I'm, and working a night shift, all this stuff in the past. And I was less tired than I am now. And I'm like, literally can't get off the couch at some, in some days. And, you know, people, it's just, it's harder also when you don't, like when I don't know what's going on and I'm pushing the doctors, like I finally was like, there's something wrong and I'm not gonna let you just tell me I'm being silly or run less because that's not an answer. Um, it just, you also kind of s start wondering if you're just being soft, you know? Like, oh, maybe I am just doing, maybe I'm just doing something wrong. Maybe I'm running too much. Maybe I'm just getting old and I can't handle this. But for me, I was also aware that like, I'm smart enough to understand the science that like overtraining, I should be getting slower, like, right? But my paces, like I could do a workout and I'm still getting faster. Like I was still progressing towards, you know, kind of like the fitness I'm at now, but the like the rest of the day, it would just be like, I'm done. But in my runs, it was like, my day's energy is just used for that. And then everything else was crap. So along those lines, how important is it to just be your own advocate? Oh, I mean, it's it's so important because honestly, I think we in running, there's not necessarily a prioritization of health. And that's how we end up with this like pr proliferation of overtraining syndrome and all the stuff. I must it's be like, healthy. I'm running so much. I know. If I can run this much, it's super healthy. But it's like, I took the perspective of, 
okay, like, yeah, I'm upset. Like I had to miss London and I was going to go for my PR there uh, last year. But I'm like, it doesn't matter if like I drop dead in five years of this thing that's like, you know, causing me these problems now. Like I, 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 I had to really push, especially because like when you are like a healthy, active person, you aren't necessarily taken seriously. And I mean, that's generally with autoimmune stuff, kind of the case is that, you know, like a hundred years ago, women were just told they were hysterical. And it's like, no, like a lot of these things were actually like conditions that we just don't necessarily understand. And so once I kind of started to get some more answers, like it was easier to stay on it, even if the path was still hard, right? Like just because you have a diagnosis doesn't mean you have an answer because you don't just get diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder and be like, here's your pill, now you're fine. Like it's still a very big process. And since this has been going on for a long time, you have to understand a lot more factors of like what the like the input is that's causing this to happen. What adjustments have you made since being diagnosed with Hashimoto's? Um, well, I have been on uh, medis- medication for hypothyroid. They thought it was just hypothyroid, uh, not the autoimmune version, but they finally figured out that it was the autoimmune de- version. And they've changed my medication somewhat. Um, one of the biggest things that I actually had to do was I've been a lifelong sufferer of I've been lifelong gluten intolerant. Um, like since I was a kid, they used to feed me cheese sandwiches when I had agonizing stomach aches. Didn't really help me. Um, so one of the biggest things that I did was not just take on like the symptoms of Hashimoto's. It was looking at the whole system. And one of the biggest, my biggest problems was my stomach. Um, and I ended up, you know, getting lots of really fun tests that, you know, 36 year olds don't usually have to get done, but actually healing my gut was one of the biggest things because once my guts were healed, like my whole system starts working better. Like the amount of, when I was first diagnosed, I went like on the autoimmune protocol, which is basically the most restrictive eating protocol you can be on. And I just felt terrible all the time. Like I became sensitive to everything. And then when uh, I went and saw an, like an endocrinologist and got my stomach stuff handled. It's like suddenly my body could tolerate so much more. So I actually had to kind of like build my immunity from the inside out. Um, and it's just been such a difference in terms of that. So it's like even being able to like, for instance, like I've suffered from low iron for a really long time, right? Because I don't have good digestion. So healing my gut, like suddenly I have more energy because I can actually absorb iron, iron, you know? Amazing. Yeah. And so it kind of was just more of a holistic approach. And I also actually focus a lot on my mind too, because like, it's not to say like that you, like autoimmune disorders are a product of trauma or stress or whatever, but I do think there is a mind-body connection. And so like... I I started working with a health coach and actually trying to unravel some of the things. Like you start getting really stressed out about what's going on. And so having somebody to be my advocate and kind of address the things that come up in that regard, like was super helpful. So, I mean, that's a big thing on its own. But as you had alluded to earlier in this conversation, you started the year coming off of ankle surgery. Yeah. And 
because I know you, I know the whole long twisted story about how that came to be, but it took you a while to bounce back from just that. Yeah. And it was a fairly major surgery. Yeah. I mean, that whole foot saga ended up being like two years long um, from the point at which I initially had to stop running and then kind of got back to running and then my foot broke itself while in my kitchen right here making coffee um, one morning. And, you know, the foot surgery turned out like the surgery itself ended up being very straightforward. They just took the part of my bone out that had broken off because they didn't think reattaching a tiny piece of bone was a good idea. So from surgery to back to running was six weeks. But in part, because they basically just needed the stitches to heal. But the issue with that, and I think how that's related to the autoimmune thing is I, that I didn't appreciate because I've never went through surgery before, is that surgery is a huge trauma on your body. And like you put, like the stuff they put in your body is, you know. Powerful. Powerful. And I, and I didn't, I had gone into surgery with like a 12-week window to back to running which probably would have protected me more, but because I was able to be weight-bearing within seven days after surgery, like the mentality kind of becomes that like, I want to get back to this as quickly as I can, but I didn't account for how big of a trauma that was on my body. And then I went into this heavy training load. I was looking for some a picture or something for somebody, and it was like, I saw that I had run... 21 miles by like the middle of January, you know, like at 640 pace or something, you know? So it's like, I just went back into training very fast. And while my foot was fine, it just, my whole system was not ready for that. Would you change anything in retrospect? I mean, it's all lessons, right? Like I don't necessarily feel like I, I didn't have any reason to think, like I felt great, like coming out of surgery. Like I went into, before I went to, did surgery, uh, I binge raced because when I, when I was, so the, <laughs> it's like, I, can't, I have to talk about basically the whole story of the foot thing. So my foot broke in March and I was misdiagnosed. Of 16. Uh, of 17. 17. So okay. I had this mystery thing happen in the fall of 16. Nobody could diagnose it, but I got back to running at the end of the year. And then in March, the same spot, probably because of all of the like forced dorsiflexion I was doing, my the anterior process of my calcaneus broke completely across. Um, but it was missed on my MRI by the doctor, one of the doctors I had been seeing for the mysterious non-diagnosable thing was obsessed with this connection of bone that I had called the tarsal coalition. So on the MRI, he had seen that that also broke. So he just stopped there and was like, you did surgery on yourself. All your problems are over. Just go run. And they're like, you might have some arthritis. So they told me I might have pain. And so I got back to running. And when it hurt, I was just like, it's pain, right? I just now have an arthritic foot. Um... <laughs> So I ran, I mean, I ran comrades, not very well. I mean, I was 10th, so I ran well enough. I bit it, then I ran Leadville. Um, but once I started getting on the trails, I noticed, you know, it was a little bit off. Like, I, I remember running on the 4th of July with EO and Sean and probably like Topher and we're hammering on Shady Side and I had stepped on a root. And when I twist my ankle rolled, it was like the most agonizing pain I've ever had. And so I 
called a doctor, a different doctor, a foot specialist at Stanford. And I was like, I think something's wrong with my foot. I'm going to come see you, but I'm going to go run this little race in Leadville first. And then we can figure out what's wrong. Which you won. Which I won. And we'll talk about that too. <laughs> um, so initially, like after Leadville, uh, the doctor was basically like, yeah, you have this full fracture in your foot and we're going to have to put pins and screws and all the stuff in your foot. And so he's like, you don't have to do it immediately because it's a stable non-union, meaning you might be, he basically was like, you might be fine. He's like, you might also end up like in the gutter in agonizing pain, you know, if this thing gives. But he's like, you can make the choice because this could end your career. Um, but as soon as I knew it was an injury, not pain, I couldn't keep going on it. You know, it changes your perspective because I was like, every time I took a step and it hurt, I was like, is this the day that like, the shit hits the fan, basically. Like, I could go from being injured and in pain to, like, really just, you know, being in a lot of trouble. So um, I was like, okay, I'll do surgery. And I call him back. And he had told me this could be, like, a year based on the pins and screws and everything else. Luckily, when I called him back, he was like, actually, these super smart doctors at Hopkins that I used to work with said, you don't mess up a professional athlete by putting pins and screws in their feet. So we're just going to take the bone out. And I was like, well, if you say that's a thing that's done, we'll just do it. <laughs> um, so we did, but we scheduled surgery. And I basically was like, can we do it tomorrow? And he was like, well, you have to wait a month. So I signed up for a bunch of races. So I like binge raced my way into surgery. So when I got into surgery, I was like, this is my off season, right? Like I was super chill. I was like, I have 12 weeks to recover, but I ran a half marathon, a Dick Collins 50 miler, and then Ta Lake Tahoe uh, marathon in like a course of like three weeks before that. And so when in surgery came, my expectation was like, as they're rolling me in, it's like 12 weeks. And so I was like, I have a nice 12 week off season. And then I come out of surgery and they're like, you're a freak. You didn't have this tendon where you're supposed to. So it's only six weeks. And so I think that in part <laughs> kind of made the difference in terms of like how I came out of surgery. Like I had given myself a three month off season that I didn't even get. Yeah, It's just a lot. Hey, it's time for a quick pause so we can thank our sponsor for this episode. It is Strava. Now, if you've been following me long enough, you know that I love Strava. I'm an avid user. I've been on the platform for five years. You can check out my training if you want, but you should check out their new podcast. It's called Athletes Unfiltered, and it is a collection of inspiring stories from the Strava community told by the runners and cyclists who live them. You'll hear from a runner who loses his sight and discovers a new community, a drummer who passes up the after party so he can get up early to ride bikes with his fans and connect in a way that he never could from on stage. A mountain biker who watched the trails that he loves burst into flames, and then he created an app to help rally his community around rebuilding them. And along the way, they'll tackle some of the big, scary questions that every athlete has to find answers to, like, why am I doing this? Am I getting too old? Will I ever run again? And no, that's not just me asking these questions to myself out loud, but the answers these athletes give might help you find some of your own. I recommend giving the Athletes Unfiltered podcast a listen. You can subscribe to it wherever you consume your audio content. That's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts. All the platforms should have it. They also have a landing page at blog.strava.com podcast that has links to every episode they've posted so far. I highly recommend checking it out. I've enjoyed the first couple episodes so far. I look forward to listening to the wide range of athlete stories that they have in store and will be rolling out over the next several months. Um, 
And that's it. My thanks to Strava for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. And I imagine through all of this on a psychological level, knowing that you have to have the surgery, you're going to have to have time off. And then you're dealing with all the autoimmune stuff and there are no obvious solutions right away, but it's affecting your energy levels. It's affecting your ability to train and race at a level that you hold yourself to. That's a pretty big toll on its own. Just that uncertainty when you are used to being a certain way and being able to train and race at a certain level. How did you navigate that part of it? Throughout the year, because these things didn't all happen at once, but it was one after another. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I think the the foot surgery and like the whole saga leading up to that, I think actually prepared me better for this year to kind of go awry. Um, I definitely had moments of grace and moments of epic failure, but I kind of took the more long-term approach. It's just like, I, I finally realized like, I don't know why I've had this sense of like every every year I like forget everything that's come before, right? So it's kind of I had this mentality like every year must be this huge year. And part of that is because when we opened the bakery in 2013, between May of 2013 and like fall of 2015, the sport grew a lot and I didn't run any ultras. And so when I came back to ultra and people were like, oh, who are you? (laughs) You know, because there's so many new people in the sport. I kind of went into this like, I'm going to, you know, pick up where I had left off. But people didn't necessarily know that. But I had, when I started to have the foot problems and be sick, I realized like, I've been doing this for a really long time. And if I can't do it for a period of time, like, you know, like I did with the bakery, like it doesn't mean that like I can't come back to it, that I won't be back. It's just a matter of like doing the right thing in this moment and not necessarily forcing it. And I mean, I've done so many races and I've, you know, I've competed in so many different ways that like, I don't want to force myself to prove myself over and over again. And there was a sense of some of the instinct to want to race is that instinct. And especially since to prove yourself, to prove myself. And yeah. And I, I don't, I think I got caught up in like that perception, like especially this past year where I kind of felt like I was like letting people, like letting my sponsors down. Like I'm trying to race because like there's this obligation and some of it was actually explicit. Like even when I had my foot thing, like I was asked by a sponsor, like literally like a week after I had started running, like, so when are you going to race? We need you to race. And I was like, I thought you loved me just for me, you know, like, and so it's, and you know, like the sport there's, it's, there's so many people doing so many amazing things. Like you kind of want to like, have I want to do something like that. And every year I feel like in my career, I've had like one, at least one thing that I'd be like, well, I had Leadville or I had Western States or I had the trials or whatever. And it was just a matter of kind of giving up that, like, I don't need to do that. Like I'm not contributing less. I'm not less of a runner if I don't have some epic race. Like I just kind of started to give myself a little bit more credit for, what I've done and then 
and stop having that need to incessantly prove myself because no nobody's nobody else is thinking about me that way like nobody else is quantifying other people that way it's just yourself and so i made the choice to stop doing that to myself and just be like you know the priority for me is health because i can't do the running if i'm unhealthy and it's as simple as that. And it's like the racing doesn't matter. If I'm going to race terribly because I'm ill, then like why am I bothering anyways? So let's keep going along this line because the final part of your tough 2018, or at least as I perceive it from the outside, is you are now no longer sponsored. And I'd love to know how much of that was your choice, how much of that was sponsors not wanting to bring you back, and how much of an influence did that sponsorship play in your feeling that you had to race as much as you could while you could, knowing that you were going to have to take time off for surgery or time off for this or time off for that? I am, you know, I, I was thinking about this earlier, like part of the sponsorship thing. I was like, I am somebody who wants to meet or exceed expectations of me. And so outside expectations. Yeah. So it's like, if you're, if you're my coach, right. And you tell me to do this, I am going to do exactly what you tell me to do because I want, I am, that's who I am. Like that's, I, I don't like, I don't want to disappoint people. And with sponsorship, that's a, that becomes a difficult paradigm because not all sponsors are going to explicitly tell you what their expectations are. Like sometimes that, you know, if you're with a company that has a billion athletes, you may never hear from them. And like, I, yeah. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Like, you don't know what the expectations are. And that's hard because then I'm just trying to pick big races to do that have been incentivized. But on the other hand, you can also have the expectations that are explicit. Like I said earlier, like having, you know, uh, a sponsor be like, asking you when you're going to race when you're literally like, I just ran for five minutes. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't want to think about that. And it, the, when it came down to it at the end of this year, I've been doing this a really long time. I've been sponsored by a lot of companies and I really appreciate what that has allowed me to do. Um, but in a lot of ways, I'm just getting to a point in my life and my career where I don't want to say I have standards, but I, I'm not going to sell myself short, right? Like if it's, a, if a sponsor says, sure, you can, like one of my sponsors was like, sure, you can, we're not going to renew you, but you could stay on if you want like a, a different, a different deal. And I'm like, I don't, I had to actually look at what sponsorship meant to me, you know, like what is this? Is it a way of I'm like using that as kind of my armor to say like I can validate my running or it gives me a sense of like who I am in the community or it's like, do I really want to do the same amount of work for less money? No, I don't want to do that. And so I, while I didn't choose for that to be put in front of me, like I chose not to sell myself short. Well, it forced you to be introspective and really look at how you value yourself and what is important to you. Yeah, and with other sponsors, um, I did opt out of one of my contracts um, in part just because I feel like it had, with the expectation thing, like I had, the situation had just become the wrong situation for me. Um, 
when I started with that company, they were in one point of their own growth. And that means one thing for the relationship. But over time, like, you know, there's a, I was thinking about the um, business model, the Griner model, which is about revolution and evolution of a company. And like, as a company grows, they go through these period of crisis. And that often means a change in like how a company does things and some, and also that's a period of stress. And so with this, you know, working with small companies, sometimes things change and like the, it means the relationship changed. And I just found myself wanting something like wanting the old relationship and it's just not being possible anymore. And so I, I realized also that uh, I was kind of like asking, I was consistently asking them to try to understand what trail running and ultra running was all all about. And it's not everybody gets it. Like that's not everybody's jam. And so it just kind of, I just realized that I don't need sponsorship to validate me. And like I said, I'm super grateful that I've gotten to travel all over the world, but it shouldn't be the thing. And it had become the thing that was kind of like driving me to pick certain races and certain goals because it was what was kind of expected of me versus being intrinsic. And I don't really thrive under extrinsic goals. Like I am super passionate about the things I decide for myself. Um, so I just realized that that had kind of, you know, caused me to do some things like I did right after my foot broke, like just racing really hard when I had no business doing it just because I was trying to meet those expectations. You're a good person to ask about this because you have been involved in the sport for a long time and have seen it evolve. But how has the sport of trail and ultra running specifically changed, the competitive sport changed over the last five to eight years? Um, you know, when I started ultra running, my first ultra was 13 years ago. It's kind of crazy. Somebody pointed out the other day that I'm competing against That's women. That's in the sport of ultra running now. They were like, did you know that some of your competitors were in middle school when you started doing this? And I was like, I'm not that old. I'm 36 years old, but it's true. Um, you know, when I started, I ran a national championship as my first event. I didn't know it was a national championship. I didn't know anything. But when I finished, even during the race, my fellow competitors who were, I was running in the top 10, and these are like legends of the sport. Like they were super encouraging and like uplifting. And it was just about the community, right? Like it, to me, it wasn't even about like the competitive. I didn't even see the competitive aspect as being. You could have fooled people that it was even a sport. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like I crossed the finish line. Connie Gardner and Nikki Kimball came up to me and they're like, who are you? You should come try to get on the 100K team. I was like, I don't even know what that means. But, you know, like it was so supportive. And then, you know, the sport grew and you start bringing in people from other disciplines and, you know, more, there is like a kind of an attempt for co more companies to come into the sport. I think companies have realized that ultra running is still a bunch of weirdos running around in the woods for the most part. So there's like not that much opportunity, but you start having like a kind of a different model. Um, and this, not just, I, I love competition. I love like that aspect, but I don't love the idea that it's like, I'm better than you. I don't like, I don't, 
in ultra running, it's like people who are obsessed with being the best. I'm like, how do you define that in our sport? Like everybody's one person's running up a mountain. The next is running around a track. The next is running comrades. Like those are incomparable things. They're almost different sports. A lot of them. Exactly. And like, why are we not just like celebrating each other? Like be competitive, but it's still about the community. And like, you see that at Western states, like the way that like people come and they, they see the first person and the last person finish. But you just, I think there's been more, I don't know, there's more distraction now in ultra running about like everybody, you know, people being obsessed with just that 1% of people. But for me, I'm like, we're all doing the same thing. Right. Like we're all getting to the finish line and it's hard for everybody. And so I actually think that in the last, I would say in the last year, I've noticed a subtle shift that kind of feels more reminiscent of ultra running when I first, yeah, like the way that other women are. And I mean, I can only, you know, I don't know if men are doing this. I follow more women than men, but like women are like consciously like fangirling for each other and like, you know, cheering each other on and even something like the Grand Cam- Canyon um, Rim to Rim to Rim FKT. Like, Which you had at one point. Yeah, like Chrissy and I went out in 2011 with the intent to make female FKT a thing. And our record was broke uh, broken a week after we broke it. But like our point was to make it be a thing. And so when North Face was canceled and three women went out and two out of three of them accomplished the task. Like it was so cool to see that, you know, to even be a part of that legacy and to like be super excited for other people. Like I'm excited that we're trying to raise each other up in that way. Um, And so it's like things like that where I kind of see the heart of the community starting to come out more and it not just being about, you know, sponsorship or how many social media follows followers you have or you know like that kind of stuff like it's more like the essence of the community is um coming out you've done a lot in the sport you've made national teams you have run very well comrades you've run fast you were on the podium at western states you won leadville in your own career to this point not that it's over by any means but what is your proudest accomplishment as an athlete that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I, maybe it's not a race result. I don't, I got an email from somebody, um, who's a longtime member of the ultra running, uh, community this week. And, uh, he, he mailed me cause he wanted to do an interview, but he said that, I was one of the people who kind of was one of the more impactful people in the sports and like that I was kind of like doing good for the sport. And for me, like the fact that somebody said that to me and sees me that way, somebody who's been in the sport for a really long time, like to me, that is the most important thing because like, yeah, like I could try to parse it down and be like, I'm most proud of a race, but like nothing feels better to me than like being a positive influence. Um, and that's, I've always like, that's why I'm really honest, like with my social media and, you know, my journey with all the autoimmune stuff. And in my blog posts is I want other people to have, like, I want to connect with other people. Um, and so even having one person in the world kind of think that I think is probably the coolest thing for me. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Going back to 
the sport and females lifting one another up. And we've seen a lot of that happening recently. We're still seeing that it's a male dominated sport in a lot of ways. And there are things happening at races that definitely favor males over females. What can be done to bring more women into trail and ultra running on a very fundamental level? I mean, a lot of it is just the seeing women, like having that image be out there in the world to the greater population. Um, I also think it has to do with, there are different um, feelings of safety and accessibility that women, it's that women feel. And I think one, you need a lot more like female role models to see that. Um, But I think in general, the community needs to acknowledge that it is Trail running is different and for women. I mean, I, we were uh, having dinner last week with some friends. It was my husband's birthday. And uh, a female friend of ours was talking about running in the city, um, mainly in the Mission District. And Nathan said something, you know, blasé about it. Like, you know, oh, I've never felt uncomfortable running there. And I just looked at her and she looked at me and we're like, yeah, you would know. Like, <laughs> why? You didn't. of course you felt fine, you know? Right. <laughs> like, and so... I think it's just, you know, it would be nice if, I I mean, I don't get into the politics of like specific races, like equal spots. That's true in every sport. You know, I listen to a whole nother conversation. Yeah. I listen to Ironman podcasts and they are constantly talking about spot allocation and things like that. But I think ultimately it's about having strong female representation and role models is very helpful. Um, And, you know, creating ways for women to actually have that access to kind of put their toe in the water. Like most women I know who have gone out on trail runs have loved it and have continued with it. It's just a matter of like actually making the connection to get out there and to like feel comfortable doing it. And also like, even if you're a road runner and transitioning, like one of my <laughs> favorite, I, one of my former teammates, um, at Wazel, I'm, she, uh, it's a great, a very great pro runner, one of the best runners of all time. And I saw her, uh, a couple years ago and she was like, I was going to text you. I've been trying to trail run and like, I don't, I get to a rock and I just come to a stop. Right. Like, you know, it's just even making the transition of like, how do you, if that's the case, like somebody who's doing really well, you know, who runs on the road, how do you connect those two things? Because like, that's not an obstacle that is, you know, can't be overcome. You know, it's just like, how do we work to make that happen? Yeah. Educating. Yeah. I think that can happen even beyond just getting females into the sport. Yeah. I mean, I see it with men who are good road runners and are hesitant to get on trails because they're afraid of stepping on a rock and breaking their foot. I know. It was such a hilarious conversation. You mentioned your first race was a national championship. How did you get into the sport? Because you are not someone who came up through the traditional ranks of I ran in high school, then I ran in college, and then I started running fast marathons and it was a natural transition to me to get into trail and ultra running. What was your introduction to running as a sport? Um, so I was a basketball player, um, through my freshman year of college. How tall are you? Six, six, one, six, one. Um, yeah, not, you know, I, I went to a coaching, uh, clinic this weekend and they're like, are you a swimmer? Are you a rower? <laughs> <High jumper. laughs> What's your deal? I was like, mm, no. Um, so I played basketball. Um, but one of the things that I always loved, um, 
was running. And I ran a half marathon as a sophomore in high school. I ran so much for training. I was probably training like 30, 40 miles a week for basketball, but I was- Not tracking it, not really even knowing. <clears throat> no, I mean, it was doing. like my sanity, you know? It was just like, I was running because I could just exhaust myself. Um, so when I quit basketball, I took about a year off, but you know, I'm the type of person who had been working out like, I had been working out like 10 to 12 hours a day training for basketball. Like I started playing on multiple basketball teams at like in sixth grade. Like I'm not a non, like I'm an athlete. Like I can't not do that. And so I picked up running. Um, I was studying abroad in 2003. Uh, I was in Cape Town, South Africa. And my roommates and I were like, well, let's just start running a couple days a week. And we did the Cape Town half marathon. So my... <clears throat> One of my skills, or I guess my gifts, is that I am a high adapter, um, which I discovered at a young age in terms of like, if I put the work in, I adapt really well. I have a decent baseline, but so with running, I did this first half marathon and I ran like two hours or something. It was my second half marathon, but I did two hours and I just kind of became like, ooh, I wonder how good I could be. And I liked the distance. So 2005, I ran my first marathon. But as soon as I started doing marathons, I saw that I would I could see this eventuality when I stopped PRing every like every time I raced by like 20 minutes, which is essentially what I did, that there was the potential for me to be caught up in that numbers game and become frustrated. And I didn't want to burn out on running because I just loved it. And so so you had the foresight to see that if yeah. you had kept going down this road, literally and figuratively, that it might not end well for you. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm like most people, I had probably read Dean Ekranasis's book, so I was like vaguely aware of what ultra running was, and I saw an ad, like paper ad for Headlands 50K. I was living in the city at the time, and so I just signed up because I was like. I'm going to try, I tried ultra running and I tried triathlon and I wasn't really into triathlon. I did a short distance triathlon, so it just sucked because the swim counted for so much. Um, but I showed up at the ultra just like, I don't know, like all I know about this is you get to walk uphill and eat potato chips at aid stations. So it's that sounds love. super. And I just loved it. Like it was just such an amazing, like, it was just such an amazing experience, the running itself, the community, like the idea that even if I, and I did, I went back the next year and I ran Headlands again. And it was like, even the same course is different because there's so many more factors. And I just love the idea that you really can't compare even to yourself. Like you just give your best effort on the day. And that to me was something that I was like, I can do this forever. And you've been doing it ever since. Yeah. And you're going to race here in Houston in less than two weeks. Yeah. And then who knows what beyond that. But you're also sort of expanding your footprint in some ways. You're going to get into doing some coaching next year. I saw that in addition to run coaching, you're going to do some nutritional guidance as well. When did you develop an interest in that yourself? Um, it's funny because I've always really said coaching was like not for me, um, I think it's it's part of just like my own history with coaching and uh, it being a complicated relationship. And I, so this training block, 
Um, I not only used, utilized a run coach, but I had a nutrition coach and I also had my health coach. I mean, I also had a swim coach and like all this other stuff, but I couldn't swim because I hurt myself a couple of weeks ago by falling over my foam roller. Um, but what I saw was that those relationships were bringing out the best in me and that I really enjoyed the way that people were helping me, that I want to do that for other people. And especially with all of my experience, you know, I always kind of said to myself like, oh, I shouldn't be a coach. I don't have a PhD in something. And that's just my personality is like, if I do something, I want to be like the expert. You want to check all the boxes. I want to check all the boxes. And so I felt like I shouldn't, I shouldn't dip my toe in. And then I realized that a lot of what I want to do is really like, there are a lot of people with autoimmune disorder who are, I get emails from people who are like, I'm trying to run and I have this autoimmune disorder. How do I help? And it's like, just knowing that I actually have that ability to help people on that individual basis. Well, like it's that relatability. That's huge. Yeah. And I, I just feel like I, those relationships have been so important to me and so impactful throughout my life. Like my, when I actually like think about the most positive influences in my life, they were coaches. And so I just think that, I am in a place now in my life where I would love to share what I've learned and my experience um, in a more personal level because, you know, writing something on Instagram or saying something inspirational is great, but that one-on-one -on -one thing, it's like you can have a really big impact on um, other people's lives and I just want to give myself the chance to, you know, do that for other people. Yeah, it's beyond, obviously, you got to know your stuff and how to train someone for an event, especially when there's so many variables in something like an ultra. But I think that level of relatability is huge, being able to communicate with someone. And as you just alluded to, just feeling like you're on the same page with a coach and you have a chemistry and you gel with one another and there's that level of trust there is almost like that stuff I found myself as a coach outweighs how much you know. It's not to discount yeah. what you know. You, as I said, you need to know yeah. stuff. But at the same time, it's being able to relate to a person. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how good of a workout that you can write. Yeah. If the athlete doesn't trust you and doesn't believe in you, it's just not going to work. Yeah. And I definitely am like, the reason why I'm taking my time is like, I do feel like I want to have like I'm doing a nutrition certification. I've done the USATF coaching. I'm going to do the RRCA one. Like I'm even considering doing a master's in exercise science because that's just who I am. I can't just read a book. I have to get a master's degree in it. But, you know, like I, I do, I want to have both. And I feel like, especially given that my experience is so eclectic in terms of distances and disciplines, like I think that that can be, help, especially with people who are trying to get in the sport, like that's a, a good gateway as opposed to like, if you just have experience on like how to do sky running, like that's great too, but that's, you know, not going to get somebody who lives in the middle of New York city to sign up for their first trail 50 K necessarily. You just mentioned the positive relationships you've had with coaching and how they've impacted you and brought out the best in you, but you've also had not so positive relationships with coaching outside of running. Yeah. Is that something we can talk about? Yeah. I it's, mean, it's, it's been covered, but I mean, I'm, and I'll I'm link, yeah. <laughs> I'll link to some of those in the show notes, but the short version is, and not to discount the entirety of the story at all, but when you were playing basketball and 
or a teenager from 15 to 18, you had a coach who took advantage of you and abused you. And turned out he ended up abusing other people as well and abusing his power as a coach. And it ended up being a whole big ordeal that got covered, but obviously had a very profound impact on you and your life and just sort of how you view coaching now. Talk to me a little bit about that story and just the impact that it's had on your life over the last 21, 20, 21 years now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the type of thing where at the time when I came forward and, uh, you know, went to the police and put him in jail, um, like I was like, I'm, I'm lucky, right? Like I'm the one at 21 years old or 20, however old I was when I spoke up, up, like I was like, I can, like, I can save my life because I'm not just building my whole life on this lie. And I'd seen that happen to other people, even people that he had abused in the past, like having their whole life built around a lie. And I was like, I'm lucky, right? Yeah, this bad thing happened, but I can, I can move forward. I can move on. Um, But you know, it's not necessarily like that simple. And I am someone who, like, I am, I have a very high like sense of self-efficacy. And so I was like, I'll figure it out. Like, I will, I'll be okay. And I'll do all the introspection because I'm an introspective person. But I think it's one of those things where like trauma and things like that, you, you go through it and you don't necessarily, like, I didn't, necessarily know like what I'm what am I what am I figuring out like what am I trying to reconcile and so it took many many years and including a lot just this last year where there were like little blind spots where I had just not like I just never grieved the situation right like I thought through it all, but I just never was like sad about it. Like I was so intent on getting over it that I just never was like, man, that just crushed my soul. And so it's just been a learning process, but like, it's just given me a lot of empathy for like how much of an impact things can have in your life. And I was very determined to not have this become like my one thing that was like what I was defined by, which is, you know, if you look at my ultra running career, like most people didn't actually even know this part of my history until um, there. Megan Hicks wrote an article about it. I think it was probably 2015-ish. And then when Billy's film film was like, and even Billy's film, like when he, the way he told the story even gave me different perspective on it. And like, it's just kind of like a constant process of staying open to how, much of an impact this can have on your life. Um, it's not something that like you think about every day, but it does like just being manipulated by somebody that way and controlled by somebody that way. Like it leaves tracks and it leaves habits. It's like there was uh, a situation in which I was getting really upset by the way somebody was ta- like talking to me. And I was like, I don't understand why this particular situation. And then I realized it was the way that he had tried to control me. It was the same model. And it's like, while this person was doing something that was relatively benign. It didn't click. No, it was just like, I was like traumatized by this thing that should have been in- innocuous. And so. It wasn't until you're able to step back yeah. and really contextualize it that you're like, 
Ah, yeah. I'm making the connection here. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's some of the things that took me the longest to reconcile were actually like essentially the fallout, right? Like it's easy for me to, it was easy for me to focus on what that particular part of it had done. But like when I stood up and went to the police, like the, the people who are my best friends in the world, like the other girls on the team, every one of them abandoned me, you know, like I had to reconcile that I went through all of this and not a single person tried to help me, you know, not nobody in my family, like nobody tried to intervene. It was like me standing up on your own. I was on, it was completely on my own. So you think about like, that's even more complicated. Like, how do you forgive that? How do you reconcile that? Like, you know, there've been instances where things happen, like in friend groups where I'll just be like, I still have that, like, you know, a little bit of disease where I'm like, are my friends really my friends? Like, and it took me a long time to just realize that it's not a function of what's happening now. It's learn, it's, it's that experience. And like, that's valid. And it's just kind of like, I feel like I've just continued to do the work over, over the years to kind of have this and understand that like, it's a part of my story and I don't have I don't think I, I'm, ha- I'm happy with who I am. I'm happy with where I am in my life. And so it's kind of like, yeah, this bad thing happened, but it's also what has made me who I am. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I don't want to have like the, I don't want to be triggered or <laughs> have, you know, those kind of things in my life, but it is a part of my history. Right. It's part of your story, but it's not your whole story. Exactly. And a lot of these things that you just described, they're scars. Yeah. And I think- part of the challenge is accepting that some of them may never heal. Yeah. And and they may open up yeah. when you least expect it sometimes. And that can be a painful thing to try and deal with. Yeah. And it's, it's also like just a process of, I think this past year, I would describe it just as humbling because, you know, I couldn't do what I wanted to in racing. Like I got really like, you know, I, I had thought I had like it all figured out on the, you know, and then like I got really humbled when I started working with my health coach and we actually talked a lot about those things where it's just like I had to be humbled to realize that I don't have it all figured out and I and that some of the function of feeling that way is actually just protecting some of the things that need to be resolved the most. Um and so that was a blessing to make me realize like it's on it's ongoing, right? Like it's not it's actually kind of produced instead of like what I did when I first was dealing with this, which was like that rush to be over it. Now I just have curiosity about when something comes up or a situation manifests in a certain way. And I have a reaction that I'm like, is maybe incongruent. I stop and I go like, where is that coming from? It's just made me kind of like more cognizant of, the way things over time can influence the present, um, which is almost good. It's actually like broken some habits of, you know, patterns that I've had. It's actually improved a lot of things for me. So sounds like it's helped you to find some understanding in different aspects of your life. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I had to finally learn was like one of the fundamental things that people predators use is like, making you question your fundamental self-worth. And I had never gone back to that to be like, I never checked myself, right? Like I do all these things, I accomplish so much, yet I don't necessarily, I never reconciled like kind of 
having a fundamental sense of self-worth again. And over the past year, I just realized like that I had been missing that. And like self-worth is inherent. It's not like a fluctuating thing. And so to actually just like learn that lesson, it was like, oh, I didn't realize that I had just left that part out. And so it's been, you know, it's it's just part of the process. Did that experience make it more challenging for you to enter in to future relationships in your life, specifically coach-athlete relationships? You mentioned, I mean, your coach, Ian Torrance, coaches you from where he lives in Flagstaff. You have a health coach, you have nutrition coach, some of whom you have strength coach you'll yeah. meet with on a on a regular basis. Does it make you a little more guarded or have you come to, I don't want to say a resolution, but a spot where you're like, you know what? Yeah, there are some creepy people out there. There are predators. There are people who are going to take advantage of you in different aspects of your life. But inherently, people are are good. And I'm going to lead with that trust that is so important in all of these relationships and watch out for myself as well because I have this knowledge. But I'd love to get your take on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it was interesting. A couple of years ago, um, I tried working with a, a different coach who is a good person and a friend and not I, I'm, but I noticed that there are certain things within the coach athlete relationship, and like this um, type of coaching was a lot more close contact, like you know, weekly phone calls, that kind of stuff. And I found myself kind of like when I talked about earlier, like expectations and stuff and approval, where it was like I stopped, it stopped, I stopped focusing on my own goals, and I started going into this path of like approval for my coach. And I was like, I can't, I just, I immediately, like all of the warning signs were like, I was like, I can't do this. Like, it's so like, I don't know, like, I can't parse out how to not do that like that. So it's just not the right relationship for me. Like Ian is great. Ian's like, Ian is there when I need him, but he's also knows that like, in your space. I, ha- I have, I have, I like I'm a, I'm a, I'm, he gives me the plan. I do the plan. Like it, it doesn't, we don't need a lot of talking about that. And so it's just figuring out essentially the proximity that's comfortable. Um, and that was the only time I've had that kind of experience in the last, you know, 18 years in which I kind of felt that wariness. Um, I mean, I, I think I give most people the benefit of the doubt that like, just because I had this bad experience with one person doesn't make all people bad. Um, I mean, it's not the only person that I've had a bad experience with in my life, but I think generally, I just, I didn't want, like I said, I didn't want that experience to shut my life down. And so like, part of that is staying open to the world and like, I mean, it's like with anything, it's like you have to risk failing at something in order to have the possibility of success. And it's like, you have to risk running into bad people if you want to meet good people. Like I could have shut down and like, I could be a lone wolf and live by myself and never have, you know, gotten married. And, you know, I don't know, like I could have chosen that, but I, I didn't want to live my life that way. I appreciate you sharing that story. It's a powerful one. And I know it's not easy to relive some of that stuff, but I think people will appreciate hearing it and taking stuff away from it that they may not even know that they're struggling with. And that's, for me, one of the most impactful parts of this podcast is things like that that can come out. 
and you never know who's listening to it and who's going to be positively impacted by it. So thank you. Yeah, it was uh, actually interesting. I when I went to the coaching clinic this weekend, you know, I came in. They do safe sport now, and it was interesting because I walked in and they were talking about this particular. You know, they were talking about sexual abuse by coaches, and now it's like it's really cool to me to see that that is something that you know, as a sport or as sports we're talking about. Um, and I, you know, and like the things that they were, I'm like watching the people watch this video and maybe it's their first time, you know, having any experience with that. But it's like, for me, I've always felt that like, I, I came forward against my coach to actually protect somebody else who I was hoping had not become a victim. Um, and like, so talking about it to me has the same thing. It's like, you know, just if somebody hears this and is like, you know, I, I've never really thought about the way, the weird relationship I see with somebody else or like, you know, it's kind of the see something, say something idea. It's like, to me, that's why it's important to talk about is you can have an impact and you just don't know what that can be. Well, and a lot of these issues as well. I know from my own story and not to make this about me, but having struggled with disordered eating in the past, which is something a lot of runners don't talk about, especially males, and wasn't exactly an easy thing for me to get out there, but doing so helped other people yeah. who are like, oh, it's not just me. And that's sort of how I felt and why I didn't want to get my story out, but knowing, oh, it's not just me, and then they can get help, and they can in turn help someone else. And that's, I mean, I really think that's why we're all here is just to help each other out I know. when it comes exactly. down to it. Yeah. We'll wrap up here very soon, but there's no way I can end this conversation before talking about my favorite bakery, MH Bread and Butter, just a couple miles down the road here from where you live, which you've mentioned a couple times already in this conversation, but you opened it with your husband, Nathan, 2013. You guys did a Kickstarter to get the doors open there, and here we are, year six, I believe, yep. 20, early 2019. Tell me a bit about the impetus behind starting a bakery. At this point, you're like, oh God, why? Why did we do that? No. Um, so Nathan worked at Tartine, um, which is a world famous bakery um, in San Francisco for eight or nine years um, in bread. Like he is the ultimate bread geek. His nickname is The Baker. The Baker. For the locals here. Yeah. Um, so when he was there, I was working as a personal chef. So I was a food person. That's part of our, you know, beautiful love stories, running in food. And I always said to him when he was ready, if he was ready, if he made the decision to leave Tartine because he wanted to do something else, I would be a part of that. It sounded like a great idea to me because I had never worked in a restaurant. Uh, <laughs> so uh, 2011, I remember very distinctly that I had just flown home, home from Mad City. I had just won the 100K National Championship. And I fly home and Nathan and I go for a walk and he tells me he's a year away from being a year away. So meaning 2013, we can just, you know, go full full bore. And so he gave notice in 2012. He gave his boss a year's notice. Um, and we just started planning and like, you know, we're, we we're 30, 29, 30 years old at that point. Like we had no idea what we were doing. So it was, I took the time to start building, like learning the business side. We talked to. Neither of you had any business experience. No. I mean, yeah, I worked in accounting and stuff like that, but that's, you know, not the same thing. So I actually have my master's in library and information science. So I feel like that I did that degree so that I could 
make myself an expert at anything, like knowing where to find information. So, so for two years, I just basically started putting those pieces together and we found a space and there was a whole long saga with getting in the space that we're in now. And yeah, it just, it was basically like the idea to allow Nathan to take his baking to the next level uh, because you will always reach a certain point when you're working for somebody else that you want to do your own thing. Like you want to know what that's like. And so um, we ended up in a huge space, full cafe, you know. <laughs> Check it out if you're ever coming through San Anselmo, California. Just look for all the runners. Just look for all the spandex outside. You'll <laughs> well, but it's beyond that. Yeah. I mean, it is, I've gone in there different days of the week, different times of the day. It's always packed. Yeah. And there are a lot of endurance athletes. There's just a lot who live here in general and yeah. it's right on the main bike route. So a lot of people do stop there and get yeah. their pastry and get their coffee. I certainly go there after a run as well, but it's become a part of the the community even beyond that. But both you and Nathan are embedded in the running community here were before you even opened the bakery. For those of you who don't know, Nathan's a pretty damn good runner in his own right. Multiple hundred mile finishes, 232 marathon. 233 bastard. Uh, uh, makes me so mad. <laughs> I gave him my training plan when I was training for the trials and he goes out and ran like 10 minutes faster than I did. And it still gets a lot of support from the running and endurance community here. How important was that community that you were a part of in getting it off the ground and making this dream a reality? I mean, we really, I mean, our motto is nourishing the community through honest food. Like it is about having, it's not, it's not just about the food. It is about the community. And, you know, we were like, we stayed here because our best friends, Brett and Larissa Rivers decided to stay here and open San Francisco Running Company. Like we wanted to be with our people. And so having our, the running community be a part of like the Kickstarter, it was very important to us because that's our community. Like, you know, food people are a different community, but it's, they don't work the same way that the running community does. And so we wanted, like from the very start, we were like, we want it to be acceptable for like sweaty people to come in here. Like we, like the first time somebody commented on like me in my sweaty running clothes, like it was just like, that's part of our culture. Like, I'm not touching your pastry in my sweaty clothes, but, you know, like... You These know, are like, people. Yeah, this is what it's about. That's why this place exists. Yeah, and, you know, I I feel like we took a part of San Anselmo that was really struggling and that there was not... That end of town was not really rooted in anything and have made it thrive. And, like, we've made it viable for other businesses to exist down there. And I think that more than, like, selling any number of croissants or loaves of bread is what really drove us to do this. It's like, we want people to have a place. It's like, cheers. We want people, a place that people like. And he has like, a vibe to yeah. it. Everyone knows your name. I mean, exactly. I, I walk in, they know my name. They're like, do you want your, your morning bun and your cappuccino? <laughs> yes, I would, please. Thank you. Exactly. Um, and that's a great vibe that you guys have created. Let's talk about nourishing food for a bit. Do we have time? Yeah, I got nothing but time. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting a nutrition certification. You'll be doing a little bit of, of coaching there. You just had a post maybe in the last week or two on Instagram about being nutrition agnostic and eating whole foods and really nourishing yourself as an athlete. And I would love to get your take on why that is something you are so passionate about right now. Um, I So I went to culinary school in 2007 because I wanted to be able to feed myself. Like I was really into food, but I was really into running. 
And I was like, these two things don't seem to be able to coexist together. And I went down the rabbit hole and like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like I have lifelong stomach problems. So I have been like an experiment of one for a really long time, you know, and I've done all sorts of like different protocols and I've included things and not included things. And, and I've just like over time, what I've realized is like the thing that I've done in this last training block is very much like being nutrition agnostic. I didn't, I stopped looking at this as like a, a list of like, okay, well I'm in hard training, so I don't get sugar. It's like, I've eaten more carbs in the last three months than I probably have eaten in the last three years because like people get so wrapped up in these ideas of what they see out there in science. But ultimately what I was realizing, especially for runners, like most of nutrition science, you know, the headlines that, you know, you get pushed to your phone or whatever are not applicable like to somebody who is exercising at a high level. And we get so caught up in these specific one true things but the reality is like those are all biased towards something and so you know we were talking about you mentioned disordered eating it's like those things and that stress around nutrition come from the fact that we are trying to we want a set of rules because we feel like otherwise we're going to be out of control and it's like enjoying yourself and enjoying food is a part of life and it's actually a part of your health. It's like, I, like I said earlier, like I went on the most strict pro protocol there is for eating and I didn't get any healthier. Now I have like, I've eaten two boxes of Lucky Charms this training block and I feel amazing, you know? And so it's like, I got to that place by not over defining myself as something, you know, I've been a vegan, I've been paleo, I've been, you know, X, Y, and Z. Well, over, it's an identity yeah. thing too. I think food has that power about it in that it unites people, but it also can alienate people and people will beat their chest that I'm a vegan. I'm nothing against any of you people at all. <laughs> um, but it, it has that effect and it can become, you know, very combative sometimes like, no, 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 this is the way that you, no, this, this is like the one way. And it's like, well, no, it's like, the the way is to is to you know really nourish yourself with whatever works for you and yeah maybe there's some things that you are you can't tolerate and you shouldn't eat because you'll have an adverse reaction it's like yeah that's that's life that that happens but at the same time you shouldn't restrict yourself because someone tells you like that's bad just don't do it yeah and i i feel like for me people tend to they get that definition and then they're like this is true so therefore it's true for everybody but you know what everybody is different in what their body can tolerate and what their needs are. And like, yeah, like there's some obvious things that every, like I, I think basically the idea of being nutrition agnostic is kind of like everybody should subscribe to the idea that we should be eating not a lot of processed foods, eating whole foods, like getting exercise, getting sunlight, like the bigger principles are the only thing that are true for everybody. Fundamentals. Fundamentals. And that's actually one of the things they teach in nutrition coaching is like only 3% of the population is actually doing the four fundamental things, like those four fundamental things. And so like all the other stuff of like, this is wrong, that's wrong, blah, blah, blah. All that does is serve to confuse you. Like you should be able to eat a morning bun and not freak out. Like if you are, like if you don't have 
celiac or gluten or severe gluten intolerance, like eat the morning bun. Like you don't, nobody said you have to eat morning bun every day, right? Like it's just like, allow yourself to enjoy it. It's it's also about balance. And I think at this point, like I have never, like when I was vegan, stressed out all the time. Like when I've had rules of like, you know, before the, the trials in 2012, I think I did like the whole 30. So I just used that protocol as what I was going to do. And like, I was in great shape and it worked for me then, but I was also still like, you get to, you get hungry and you're at the grocery store and you're like, I'm going to freak out. Right. Like that's not, it shouldn't be a part, like it, that shouldn't be a part of things. Right. Like you don't need to live in that place of like high nutrition stress. Like it's not good for you. Yeah. I can appreciate that and not to go off on a tangent, but you can apply that same framework to a lot of different things in life. I see it with training. If it's high intensity interval training, good. Should I do long, slow distance? Should I do this? Should I do that? Yeah. It's like, you should nail the fundamentals first and then we'll tweak all of those, those other things. But same thing in running. Like a lot of people miss the fundamentals in life. Like you've chased the headlines yep. and you want to do this and you want to do that. And it's like, are you addressing the fundamental things? Probably not. Most people aren't. Yeah. And, and I think in nutrition, certainly that is one of the biggest, if not the biggest challenge that's out there right now. Well, and I think it's like, you know, people are like, well, I could never run like you do. And I'm like, I run like the complexity and the distance that I do because I'm trying to perform at the highest level. And I've been doing this for a long time. Like I can't, my body can tolerate that. And it's like, essentially like, you know, having people try to, it's the same thing in a diet. Like, why would you have somebody be doing intermittent fasting and nutrient timing and weighing their food and only, you know, doing all these very specific things if like they literally can't even remember to eat vegetables, like five vegetables in a day, right? Like it, it is about like, break it down. Like, do you need to be putting all of that stress on yourself? Like, are you going to get that's like the very fine tuning. That's like for the, a very short amount of time for a very specific purpose. Like, but some of those things have also become mainstream. And so when they like intermittent fasting, like now everybody wants to do it. And you're like, you literally don't drink two glasses of water in a day. Why are you trying to do this complex thing? Just do the simple thing. And it's so good for you. Well, I'm glad to see you pushing that message. It's been great to see someone like Shalane Flanagan pushing that out through her cookbook and the things that she's doing. I think the more we can do that in general, but certainly within the sport, the better relationship people can have with food and see it as fuel and not as I got to be this, I got to be that, I can only eat this, I can only eat that, I got to go on this protocol, I got to go on that. So um, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last question before we wrap up here to bring it back to the beginning. Here we are, second week of January now, I guess. If Houston coming up, don't want you to get too far ahead of that because you have very specific goals that you're chasing there. But what else excites you for 2019 personally and in general? Um, well, I would say this is probably the most ambitious I've uh, racing schedule that I've ever put in front of myself. It's kind of funny. I was like, oh, I don't have a sponsor. It's going to be low key. And then I'm like, or not. It's, I mean, I, I'm signed up to go to Terrawera. Um, which is actually just three weeks after Houston. And it doesn't, like, it doesn't exist in my mind until Houston's done. And I'm not, it's obviously not going to be, a, it's not a specific focus, but so I'm doing that. I have some other ultras lined up. I signed up for my first Ironman. Like, that's pretty cool. Um, that's in September. 
Uh, I signed up for World's Toughest Mudder, which is in uh, November. So it's like 24 hours of obstacle course racing. So don't take this the wrong way, but why those other um, events? So I've been doing this for a long time and my bucket list is actually really small right now in terms of like when I literally like scroll endlessly through ultra running magazine or ultra sign up, like I don't necessarily have a long list of things that I want to do. And so it's more like those are challenges that I I don't have any level of mastery there. So it's it's like why I got into CrossFit, right? Like I suck at certain things and it's so amazing. Like I love the beginner mindset. Just to be a beginner again. Sure. You know, and so it's like the, with those things, I have the opportunity to be a beginner. I'm not like, you know, taking up kayaking or something that I'm not, it has no, you know, running doesn't help. Like those things obviously have running components. Um, so it's mostly just like, I have the freedom to do it. Like, sure, I want to. I want to know if I. I don't know if I like Ironmans or not because I've never done one. I don't know if I like long distance obstacle course racing because I've never done one. Like, so it's just a matter of, like, this year is exciting because I finally have given myself the opportunity to do things that are just because I can. And like those, especially those two races, like. I'm not, I don't have to prove anything, right? Like I literally can show up and suck. And it's just like, okay, then I suck. Like I don't, I'm not just trying to do things to kind of like keep my place in the sport. So it's just the kind of the challenge that and like maybe try to be able to do a handstand by the end of the year. <laughs> Let me tell you what, it's very hard for a person as tall as me with very long arms. Handstands are not- That puts you at a disadvantage. Oh my gosh. My CrossFit classmates hate me because I can show up and like most things I can just do really well. And then <laughs> handstands, they're, they're like, yeah, you can never do that. All right. So I challenge all of you out there in podcast land to see if you can take on a more diverse year than Devin Yanko trying to qualify <laughs> for the Olympic trials, Tough Mudder, Ironman. 100K just for shits and giggles, and, and then a comrade. handstand probably, at the end of the year. And probably, Good luck, people. And probably comrades, too. So. Awesome. <laughs> just want to keep it spicy. Well, this was great. Thank you so much for your time. This yeah. was a fun conversation. Thanks, Mario. All right. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the podcast, you know what I'm about to ask you. I'd love it if you went to Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you listen to audio content and left a rating and a review. Only takes a few minutes, but helps new listeners to discover the show, and it really means a lot to me. That's five stars, just a few words, all you need to do. Those of you who've done so already, thank you very much. Also, big thank you to Strava for sponsoring this episode. If you're looking for a little extra motivation on your next run or bike ride, check out their new Athletes Unfiltered podcast. It's a collection of inspiring stories from the Strava community told by the runners and cyclists who live them. I recommend giving it a listen. I really enjoyed it so far. You can subscribe wherever you consume your audio content. That's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. All the platforms should have it. They also have a landing page at blog.strava.com slash podcast. Has links to every episode that they've posted so far. Thank you, Strava, so much for sponsoring the show. Also, big thank you to John Summerford from bearsrecords.com. Thank him every week and with good reason. He helps make this show sound as good as it does week in and week out big, big part of my team. Thank you, John. And that's it. I don't think I've got anything else for you this week. So I will catch you next time for another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.